0: Hi, I'm Paul Havershood, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money.
1: Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are gonna have to eat that real wage loss.
0: And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts.
2: This
3: is a CBC Podcast.
4: Good evening, everyone. Hello. Nice to see all of you. Good evening. Welcome to the National Killam Program Celebration of Excellence. And welcome to Ideas, I'm Nala Ayad. Today, a celebration of five Canadian scholars, the winners of 2023's Killam Prizes. The $100,000 awards recognize outstanding achievements in research by Canada's leading thinkers. You'll hear one scientist whose work became crucial to the first vaccine against COVID.
1: When the results got announced, I saw the press release for 95% efficacy, It was about 8 o'clock in the morning. I went and had a glass of scotch at that point. I still couldn't believe it.
4: Plus an engineer putting us tantalizingly close to the longed-for day when solar power finally saves us all.
2: We are able to draw energy from the sun, store in batteries, and then make it available to the home users 24-7.
4: Also among the Killam Prize winners this year, a scholar curing insomnia without the use of sleeping pills, a mathematician helping us predict evolution, and a founding figure in the relatively new field of improvisology.
3: Although we don't call it improvisology, uh, but it created effectively a whole new area of discourse.
4: It was a buoyant and optimistic evening in May at the Canadian Museum of History in Gatineau, across the river from Ottawa's Parliament Hill. Scholars from across the disciplines gathered with university presidents and vice presidents with canapes and glasses of something, ready to toast the prize winners and Canadian research in general. The Killams are administered by the National Research Council of Canada, best known for the longest-running radio feature on the CBC.
1: Now for the National Research Council official time signal, the beginning of the long dash following 10 seconds of
5: silence marks one o'clock.
4: I had the honor of hosting the NRC's Killam Prize Gala and inviting the five winners in turn to the stage. The winner of the 2023 Killam Prize in Health Sciences, Dr. Peter Cullis. Congratulations. Dr. Cullis and his colleagues have been responsible for fundamental advances in the development of nanomedicines employing lipid nanoparticle technology for cancer therapies, gene therapies, and vaccines. Congratulations. Thank you. Pfizer and biotech uh, vaccine against COVID relies on your technology. What do you remember about the moment when you realized that your work would be key to a vaccine that the world was anticipating so desperately? Well,
1: this is a long story. <laughs> the <laughs> short version, the short version. I can give the 50-year version or the, uh, okay. Well, how did
4: you feel about um, that? What was that moment like when you realized your, your work? Well, there
1: was a couple of things. I, I, I gave a talk in Pearl River, which is Pfizer's headquarters. This was in the end of February of 2020. I couldn't understand why all the higher-up people in the company were there. I mean, usually when you give, you're a scientist, you go to a company and you give a talk. You know, I think you're talking to other scientists and not necessarily the people at the top. Anyway, all the top, all the top echelon was there. They were in the middle of making a decision as to whether or not to move forward with the mRNA vaccine right at that point. I didn't realize what was riding on my shoulders. Uh, but anyway, I guess I didn't say too many things that were... Uh, so, when I, when I really realized it was uh, about two months later, And we knew that uh, the Pfizer-BioNTech was moving forward uh, with the, um, you know, with the mRNA vaccine, and that every one of the four, they had four different vaccines. It was four different forms of of, uh, messenger RNA, but uh, each one of them was still using our delivery system. So that's when we knew we were in the big time. (laughs) To to put it mildly, of course. And then the, uh, you know, in November of 2020, uh, when the results got announced, uh, that was, uh, it was, I saw the press release for 95% efficacy. It was about 8 o'clock in the morning. I went and had a a glass of scotch at that point. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I I still couldn't believe it. But anyway, it was, uh, it was really remarkable moment.
4: It is incredible and remarkable. And we all thank you for it. To fully appreciate what Peter Cullis and his colleagues did, we need what he calls the long story.
1: It's a very (laughs) long story. Uh, In the middle 80s, I went back to UBC and I I got a a, a position there in the biochemistry department.
4: Peter came to CBC's Ottawa studio to tell the tale in full.
1: Biological membranes are are wondrous molecular assemblies. uh, Obviously vital, you know, there's membranes surrounding the 30 trillion cells in our body. And uh, because biological membranes are so complicated, uh, you can't study you know, the roles of individual components in the intact membrane. You have to extract, it, extract the various components, in my case extracting the lipids, in order to study their individual properties.
4: The early days of Peter's research focused on tiny particles within the membranes of biological cells.
1: We found ways of of using these uh, these nano systems they are one hundred nanometers or so in diameter. This is one one hundredth the diameter of a cell. You know you can put ten cells in the and you know, if you draw draw a line on a piece of paper that 's about ten cells wide, so mm. you can see how small these things are. Um, what we found is we could load cancer drugs into them. And so we thought, oh, okay, well, uh, that's that's going to be – we need to deliver cancer drugs much more specifically to where they're needed in the body. We still need to do that. We haven't beaten that problem by any means. And so we decided to start up a company around that. I had some very talented postdocs in the group at that point. And so uh, we decided to start a company that was going to you know, use these, these techniques to deliver, to, basically to cure cancer. I still have that as an ambition.
4: So the story begins with the goal of curing cancer. But back in the late 80s, what Peter and his colleagues had hit upon was a potential delivery route for all kinds of medicines inside the body.
1: It turned out that some of the insights, and particularly molecules uh, that we developed in the course of our very basic studies, could be applied to encapsulating nucleic acid-based drugs. And one of those was something called an ionizable cationic lipid. Nucleic acids are very negatively charged, and so in order to encapsulate them in a lipid nanoparticle or any system, you have to have positively charged molecules that interact with the negatively charged nucleic acids. The problem with those systems was that they're highly toxic. Uh, You give them to, they really kill mice very effectively, let's put it that way.
4: What Peter is describing here, it relates to a big challenge in delivering a drug using ribonucleic acid, better known as RNA. His team saw a solution in one of the tiny particles they'd been studying, the ionizable cationic lipid. It has a special property, letting it work like a capsule, a vehicle safely transporting the negatively charged nucleic acid.
1: These ionized lipids have this property that at low pH, slightly acidic conditions, such as a lemon, for example, the acidity of a lemon, they're positively charged, but in your body they're, they're, they're mm-hmm. net neutral and so therefore not toxic. Anyway, we found we could load the nucleic acids at low pH into the nanoparticles and have them retained when we raised the pH to physiological conditions. So that was quite a breakthrough, actually, because we then had systems that we could actually administer into an animal or a person, for that matter.
4: Finding a safe method for encapsulating RNA led to more breakthroughs. Collaborating with gene therapy experts, Peter Cullis and his colleagues found ways to send messenger RNA to the liver, telling the organ what materials to
1: create. We could actually deliver the messenger RNA to the um, to the liver and uh, get it into hepatocytes and it would make whatever protein we wanted. So there's a huge number of disorders, you can imagine, that could be treated. Uh, you know, a child is born not making a particular protein, um, hemophilia. I mean, there's just a legion of rare diseases one can envision. And so we thought this has tremendous scope, which it certainly does. But in 2014 uh, we were contacted by a, uh, an immunologist Drew Weissman at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, who said I'd like really like to try your systems as a vaccine.
4: So fast forward to the pandemic.
1: Yes, yeah, so that uh, that was a uh, you know that that led to a collaboration between Acuitis, it was my UBC laboratory and one of the companies they started and BioNTech uh, in Germany uh, to work on a flu vaccine. BioNTech, in turn, was working with Pfizer on a flu vaccine, so this is 2017, 2018, 2019, and of course, January, February of 2020, um, the flu uh, vaccine seemed less uh, less pressing, shall we say, and so all efforts turned to making a vaccine for COVID-19. And the uh, and so the lipid nanoparticle that we'd supplied uh, ended up being incorporated into the uh, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, which uh, we all know about now. But that's the story. It's it's a long story, but it really does go back uh, over forty years.
4: Yeah. Well, just briefly wondering if when you started looking at all this, did you ever envision a vaccine being one of the outcomes?
1: Well, oh, not it? at all. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is one of the ways in which science proceeds. You you, you often uh, you know, and oh, as a result. Too, if we were getting outside our comfort zone, obviously enough with starting a company and mm-hmm. and uh, and developing first of all the cancer drugs, and then subsequently. Uh, moving into the gene therapy. But it was a result of that kind of experience where you, you're not necessarily doing stuff where you know what the answer is. Yeah. And so uh,
4: so so going forward, is that still also the case, that well, there may be other potential uses that you haven't even imagined yet?
1: Oh, oh it's, it's, it's a spectacular time. There's a revo- these are revolutionary medicines because we're, we're using... Uh, the, uh, you know, the mechanics of the cell itself. And uh, so really anything uh, you can imagine, I mean, there's pretty much all diseases that we suffer from, you can imagine treating using a, a messenger RNA approach. As you say, revolutionary times, and you're at the forefront of it.
4: I don't relish saying this, but I would venture to think that most Canadians don't know about this Canadian and this Canadian lab's contribution. What do you ascribe that to?
1: Um, I don't know, but I have to say I appreciate, uh, you know, you you bring me on this program to uh, get a bit more publicity out, as it were. We need to celebrate, you know, our – we have tremendous – not just in science, but in many other areas. We have tremendous capabilities and um, demonstrated successes. And I think it's really important thing that we take more pride in that and that we, we really strive to uh, be world leaders. I mean, we, it's, it's there. It's the okay. possibilities are there. You know, I think as Canadians we need to say, okay, we're, we're the best. You know, this is not to say you're going to get out there and say things that aren't true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, a can-do attitude really does, really does change the equation.
4: Perhaps it'll change when you turn back to cancer.
1: Yes. The cancer opportunities now are spectacular. You know, there's cancer vaccines. You pull out the tumor, find uh, particular proteins that, uh, in which there's mutations, make an mRNA vaccine. Once you know what protein you want to make making the mRNA um, a matter of, say, six weeks, Hmm. Uh, you can package it in a day or so. I mean, right now, I think there's a very small subset of people that are realizing Mm -hmm. it, although, of course, the vaccine being developed in about three months from going the sequence of the virus really exemplifies the possibilities.
4: Thank you, Dr. Peter Cullis, for sharing with us.
1: Well, thank you very much.
4: Peter Cullis is Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at the University of British Columbia and the winner of the 2023 Killam Prize in the field of health sciences. Next, let's welcome the winner of the 2023 Killam Prize in Humanities, Dr. Ajay Hebley. Dr. Ajay Hebley is a renowned scholar, a visionary arts leader, and a passionate community builder. He's been instrumental, so to speak, in building up the field of critical studies and improvisation. His work shows us how musical improvisation works as a model for social change. Dr. Heble is joined by Vice President of Research from the University of Guelph, Dr. Malcolm Campbell. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Ajay, can you just talk about what it does mean to have your work and, by extension, the academic study of improvisation recognized in this way tonight?
0: Yes. I mean, you know, I'd like to begin by saying it's a tremendous honor to receive this award and particularly so because if you think about improvisation, it's, it's really a, a field or a model of artistic practice that until about 15 years ago was largely disparaged or looked at askance. If you, you know consider things like pedagogy, the teaching of improvisation, if you think about arts funding, even if you think about what it meant in the popular understanding, improvisation was really something that was not thought about very highly. And the work that we set out to do about 15 years ago was to challenge some of those dominant assumptions about improvisation to show that it actually was a vital model for social practice. So the work that I have done with my colleagues at the International Institute for Critical Studies in Improvisation is to show that improvisation is a vital model for social change.
4: Malcolm, what, what is it that's particularly exciting for your university about Alj's work?
3: Uh, Thanks, Nala. Ajay created effectively an entirely new ology, although we don't call it improvisology, uh, but it created effectively a whole new area of discourse to push back the frontiers of of, uh, knowledge. We're involved in acts of improvisation all the time. Indeed, one might argue that life is an improvisation, uh, and yet we don't put that into practice in the way that we could to help advance social causes. Uh, And through his work, Ajay has inspired hundreds, uh, arguably thousands of individuals the worldwide. Uh, his improvisation festival, founded in the midst of the pandemic, now entering its fourth year in October, October Correct. 21st, yep. if I'm not October
0: mistaken. 20th and 21st. There we go. <laughs>
3: uh, captures artistry from around the world, people improvising, uh, showing new ways of thinking and working together, coming together, and really navigating life which again is an improvisation and that's why we're excited at University of Guelph as we should be in Canada to have a scholar of this manner of thinking in our country in our midst thank you very much Ajay I wonder if perhaps
4: you can just pick up on that point and talk about the social impact of improvising and the ability to improvise
0: oh that's a that's a great question and it's um, one that we could talk about for a long time Hours, (laughs) but but I think um, the social impact of improvisation You know, I would begin by saying I started out thinking about musical improvisation, but I quickly understood that what happens when musicians come together is much more than that. That it's a powerful model for building community. So the example that I often give uh, has to do with an encounter at the Guelph Jazz Festival where I brought together musicians from around the world. There were musicians from Mali, from Mexico, from Ethiopia, from the Netherlands, from Canada, from the US. They had never met before. They came from different cultural backgrounds, different musical backgrounds, and they did not even have a single language that they spoke in common, except music, of course, but no language in common. And they did not sit down before their performance and and create a plan. They didn't have any prearranged musical direction, and yet they could come together in front of an audience like this, never having met, and play extraordinary music, wondrous music.
4: Here's an excerpt from that performance at the Guelph Jazz Festival in 2009. The person singing is Malian musician Jah Yusuf.
0: What does this mean? What can we learn from that moment about what it means to negotiate difference in the context of a community? What can we learn about social obligation? What can we learn about trust, about belonging? And I often quote, The cultural critic Ian Eng. And she says that the most important question confronting us in the 21st century is how are we to get along in in our world, in a globalized world. And I think there's something encapsulated in that moment when artists come together to improvise that can provide a telling response.
4: Just before the prize ceremony began, I also had a chance to speak with Ajay Hebley in the busy foyer of Ottawa's Chateau Laurier Hotel. What does it take to be someone who is a good improviser? There's no easy answer, but
0: I think that one common element that if you were to ask, so I've just finished a book uh, with my colleague Jesse Stewart, uh, and uh, in this book which is about improvisation and uh, pedagogy, we asked a number of improvisers precisely these kinds of questions and one of the things that comes up over and over again is listening. You really need to be a good listener. One of our mentors was the great late Pauline Oliveros, and she had this concept called deep listening which is really about listening to everything that's going around you not just the music but the environment and i think that's part of it right being a good improviser is really being aware of what's happening around you and being able to adapt in real time to the situations in which you find yourself so i would say that the ability to adapt to be flexible And the ability to listen, I would say, would be the most important things that I would
4: highlight. You say that the Killam Prize kind of adds legitimacy to the field of study. Can you describe what it was like prior to getting that kind of vote of confidence?
0: Absolutely. I think if you think about arts funding, uh, opportunities for improvising artists in terms of arts funding, if you think about pedagogies, what was going on in classrooms around Canada, if you think about the public understanding, what did most people think about when they thought about improvisation? They thought, oh, it's just made up, uh, off the cuff, uh, doesn't really require any prior thought or planning or, you know, uh, insight. Uh, but all of that is, in fact, wrong. Right? Mm-hmm. So that has changed. And now the amazing thing is we're seeing all over the world, not only do we now have a graduate program specifically focused on improvisation studies at the University of Guelph, but we're seeing exhibits, we're seeing conferences, all kinds of events taking place, focusing on improvisation.
4: What's the difference between improvising in music and improvising in conversation?
0: I think they're similar in many ways. You know, I think that we're improvising right now, and I think if I was to sit down at this piano and play for you, it would be very similar. I, you know, I would be listening to what's going on around me and responding. So I think there, there's a similarity.
4: What kind of improvisation are you interested in, in particular?
0: My interest is in musical improvisation. So I founded the Guelph Jazz Festival in 1994, and I served as its artistic director for 23 years. And a lot of the work that I do with my institute, the International Institute for Critical Studies in Improvisation, a lot of that work emerges out of the work that I did as the artistic director of the Guelph Jazz Festival. I had this vision of it being a festival of avant-garde, experimental music, uh, improvised music, creative improvised music, and experimental jazz. And it took a while for that to build, right? Like, it, it took some persistence to convince people that this was something that would work in this community. And my goal was not only to attract the aficionados, who I knew would come from far and away. I was really inspired by what I saw going on in Victoriaville, Quebec, which has this fantastic uh, festival of what's called Musique Actuelle. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a world-famous festival where people come from all around the world to hear this experimental avant-garde music, and I was really inspired by that, but I I was also really inspired by something going on in my own community, the Eden Mills Writers' Festival, which was much more, it was like really rooted in the community. Uh, people from the community really cared about this event and attended it, so I wanted both. I wanted the aficionados who would travel far and wide and come from all around the world, and I wanted a festival that was rooted in the community. Uh, and how do you do that with avant-garde improvised music? But I think that, that was the goal, and I think now, looking back, I think we managed. Guelph is now a vibrant uh, cultural hub for avant-garde experimental music and improvised jazz and improvised music generally. It's just now much more common to be able to attend events where improvisation is happening, which was not the scene in Guelph in 1994.
4: Yeah, yeah, quite an achievement. Thank you and congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Ajay Heble is the founding director of the International Institute for Critical Studies in Improvisation at the University of Guelph. He's also a professor of English at the university and an author. His latest book is called Jamming the Classroom Musical Improvisation and Pedagogical Practice. It's co written with Jesse Stewart. You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast, heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada. Across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers.
3: What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was
5: dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend.
4: Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. The National Research Council's Killam Prizes are effectively Canada's Nobels. Each year, awards of $100,000 go to leading scholars in the five major areas of study— health sciences, the humanities, engineering, natural sciences, and social sciences. The prizes recognize distinguished careers, excellence in research, and significant contributions to society. The laureates for 2023 received their awards at a ceremony at the Canadian Museum of History in Gatineau, Quebec. It is my pleasure to introduce the winner of the 2023 Killam Prize in Natural Sciences, Dr. Sarah Otto. Dr. Otto is known for her theoretical studies investigating how the very nature of organismal inheritance and reproduction evolve using mathematical models to investigate selective forces on genetic systems. Please join me back over here to have a chat. Congratulations! Thank you. What does it mean to you to win this prize?
6: You know, when I started as a scientist, I would call myself a biologist or a geneticist or a population biologist, and I actually didn't use the word evolution. I'm an evolutionary biologist. That's what I study. In my career, seeing just how, you know, we were hesitant to use that word. There was so much negative feeling about this as a field, exploring how life came to be this incredible, diverse, wondrous thing that we see around us. And so for me, it feels like, no, actually, you know what? We're not gonna understand medicine. We're not gonna understand antibiotic resistance. We're not gonna understand COVID. We're not gonna understand the crisis facing many species that are at risk of extinction, unless we understand that evolution and put it into our language. And so part of what I think this prize means for me is that this field has matured to the point where I can win a prize like this.
4: I understand that one of the questions driving your research early on is why so many species have sex. (laughs) Have you settled on an answer yet? Yes. (laughs) Let me talk about sex. (laughs)
6: Um, So, you know, the world uh, is finite. There's limits to The diversity we have in any one species is not an infinite variety a lot of the math the early math assumed There were an infinite number of individuals that means there was an infinite number of combinations an infinite number of mutations Happening every generation and evolution wasn't limited, but the world's not like that The world is limited the genomes are large the number of combinations of mutations that are possible literally almost infinite And yet evolution runs out of power, runs out of juice once in a a finite population. And so that really is the key, It was having to do the math in a different way, develop a body of math that said, yes, evolution will proceed with a finite, limited um, set of genomes only if there's sex and recombination. It speeds things up and as a consequence, life is a little bit spicier. (laughs)
4: Stage at the ceremony, I had a chance to ask Dr. Otto for more details about her work.
6: My name is Sally Otto. I'm an evolutionary biologist at the University of British Columbia. My nickname is Sally, so feel free to call me Sally when you
4: are speaking. Up. I will do. Intuitively, math yeah. and evolution don't fit really into one sentence I where. No. Know. You know, let me change that. Yeah. Because they do. <laughs> math and ev- so
6: evolution is complicated. Mm-hmm. It's not just a hill climbing where there's one single best, fittest thing. If evolution were like this, we'd have an extraordinarily boring world where everything looked the same. It's not that way. So sometimes fitness actually declines over evolutionary time. And sometimes it takes different paths because it depends on the context, what other species are around, what's the environment. We always think it's an improvement. Yeah. But it's not. It's not. Because of all of the other things that are going on, including sex and recombination, mixing things up. So it's in this complicated world, that understanding where is evolution going, that math helps. Math helps us put in the ingredients of what we know is going on, and from putting those ingredients together, figuring out when evolution goes left and when it goes right, when it leads to small-sized organisms or large-sized organisms, small-lived, short-lived or long-lived, and that diversity of life that we see around us, thats math can help us understand why we've
4: got it. Answering the question of why species have sex also turns out to require mathematics. Although many of us might first need help understanding why it's even a question.
6: You know, it was one of the biggest puzzles in evolutionary biology when I first entered into the field. And and the reason was everywhere we looked, we could see these problems, these costs. When organisms have sex, they're mixing up their genomes with that of another individual. But those genomes are exactly what allowed their parents to survive and reproduce. They're winning lottery tickets in the genomic lottery. Why break up the winning ticket? In the current environment, it works. Against the current parasites, it works. Breaking that combination apart and making offspring by m- mixing up your genes with another, bad idea. Imagine going into a poker hall. You've got two winning hands. You've got to win only like four aces. Somebody else has a, f- has a flush. Would you combine your cards? No way yeah. would you combine your cards. And the reason is the same. You've got these winning hands. that Your genes work well in your current environment. Mixing it up doesn't make sense. Except... That if you change the rules of the poker table...
4: The poker table being the conditions that we are in. That's right. The circumstances. Exactly. Exactly.
6: And it turned out we were doing kind of the math wrong. We were doing the math in a way that looked at the problem as you have an infinite population of everything that's possible. And when is sex beneficial and when it isn't. It didn't work. Hmm. And so one of the real advances was going back to first principles and saying, well, there is no population that's infinitely large. Let's do this right. Let's do populations. Let's do the math where we acknowledge that populations are smaller. And then it's it revealed the math turned out completely different in answers. And the reason was sex is beneficial because it provides the combinations that aren't possible in our finite world. You know, you think about our genomes, there are three billion base pairs, four possibilities at each site. There's just no way for evolution to kind of visit those possibilities without sex yeah you've
4: been looking into the adaptation of yeast yes why
6: so yeast you know i initially got into it because there were all these questions that we had in our models things that we didn't know about it's like okay yeast are going to be perfect they reproduce every 90 minutes i mean they make our beer and our wine and they evolve over days so we could look and evolve them over the course of days and figure out are they matching our theory or are they not matching our theory so that's why I started getting into it. And actually what I've really loved about working on yeast is they always evolve in ways we are not expecting. Hmm. They do crazy things. And it makes me realize we think we understand life, but there's so much more to it. We, it's like you know, the saying that we only understand the top 10% of an iceberg. And it's more like we probably only understand the 0.1% of the iceberg that is life. Hmm. And so even the very, very simple things... How cells reproduce, how their DNA is organized. Actually, the yeast aren't doing it the way we think they're doing it.
4: Hmm. I can't wait to hear more about that. Mm-hmm. Thank you so, so much. much. <music> <music> Sally Otto, professor of zoology at the University of British Columbia and winner of the Killam Prize in the Natural Sciences. Next, I'd like to welcome to the stage the winner of the 2023 Killam Prize in Social Sciences, Dr. Charles Morin. Ensuite, j'aimerais accueillir sur scène le lauréat de Prix Killam 2023 en sciences sociales, Monsieur Charles Morin. Why has it been important to look at not just insomnia, but at people's attitudes to sleep as well for you?
5: I mean, we, we pay more attention to nutrition. We pay a great deal of attention to the importance of exercising. But sleep is not, uh, does not receive the same attention. And it's one of the three major pillars for global and sustainable health. And many people have uh, somewhat unrealistic beliefs about what sleep should be like.
4: What sort of unrealistic beliefs?
5: Well, like... The belief that we absolutely need eight hours of sleep every night to feel rested and function well during the day. Of course, there's some truths to that. Uh, but the other belief is that if you don't get that amount of sleep, then you won't be able to function. Then that quickly becomes a vicious cycle and uh, generate insomnia, even in people who are not necessarily insomnia. So you worry yourself into sleeplessness? Indeed.
4: As with the other Killam winners, Charles Morin spoke with us about his work in more depth, away from the ceremony itself. We met up in the lobby of Ottawa's Chateau Laurier.
5: My name is uh, Charles Morin. I'm a professor of psychology at Laval University in Quebec City, and I've spent almost all my career researching sleep and insomnia. What got you onto that road? Well, I think that's a nice bridge between the mind and the body. If you don't sleep well, it's going to have a negative impact on your mood. It's going to have a negative impact on your body. And if you have a mental health problem or some type of physical discomfort, necessarily will have an impact on your sleep. So it's all interrelated.
4: What would you say is your biggest contribution to the science of sleep?
5: So there have been drug treatments for decades uh, and they all have their limitations. Uh, and some at sometimes they can be helpful, but uh, by and large, that's not the solution for people who have chronic insomnia problems. So my interest has been to develop uh, form of psychotherapy that we call cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a brief um, sleep focus problem solving type of therapy. It's very pragmatic. I'm a very pragmatic person. I've spent uh, my career trying to refine uh, these interventions uh, adapt them to different group of people younger adults, older adults uh, people who became dependent on sleeping pills uh, people with chronic pain, with depression so I think that about two-thirds of people will benefit from this type of treatment but that leaves many who do not benefit fully from it Uh, so there's still much more work to be done. And sometimes we do a a study and it generates more questions and it provides answers. That's research. It's
4: the way of science. Yeah. Yeah. Why is it that stress causes insomnia?
5: That's the $1 million question. But, uh, I mean, these two states, stress and sleep are just incompatible with one another but there are many types of stress uh, i mean anxiety depression uh, uh, maybe some uh, physical ailments uh, all these uh, are different types of stressors uh, and in turn uh, it's like with pain uh, the the more intense your pain is the less you'll sleep but the less you sleep uh, the more you will perceive your pain to be intense. So with stress, it's the same. If you don't sleep well, it's going to be much more difficult for anyone to cope with the day-to-day stressors we need to deal with. It's important to engage in some rituals before we go to bed so that we prepare ourselves for that part of the night. But sometimes we find that people overdo it and they become so obsessed with their sleep. They get in their pyjama at 7 in the evening and they're just waiting for sleep to come, so this isn't good. I think we have to prepare um, our sleep, our night sleep, uh, as we prepare ourselves for a trip, a journey. I mean, we just don't uh, get on the plane one day and go somewhere else. Uh, with sleep, is the same. We have to prepare ourselves mentally and physically. So that's why it's important to have a, a period to unwind before we get to bed. That aside, I think that we have a tendency, if we don't sleep well, to spend too much time in bed when we should do the reverse. Sometimes it's best to spend a little bit less time in bed and make sure that we are sleep deprived when we go to bed. There's no point in going to bed at 8 in the evening or 9, just to make sure we'll be asleep by 11. It's best to push it back and reserve that environment for sleep only no tv watching or no emailing uh, no reading uh, really and worse no problem solving when you go to bed put that aside and just go to sleep
4: thank you so much
5: thank you and that's my pleasure
4: Charles Morin is professor of psychology at Laval University in Quebec City. He won the 2023 Killam Prize in the social sciences category. Next, please join me in welcoming the winner of the 2023 Killam Prize in engineering, Dr. Praveen Jain. Dr. Jane is a trailblazer in the field of power electronics and one of the most prolific inventors in the art of processing electrical energy through electronics for the efficient generation, transmission and utilization of electric power. Please. Congratulations. Thank you. I wonder what a prize like this does for you and your work?
2: Well, I think um, it, it means a lot to me. Uh, I still remember um, some 42 years ago, I came to Toronto to do my master uh, degree, right? So I think from that point and sitting on this podium and uh, receiving this award, it means a lot to me. It's a long journey of uh, 42 years. It's basically like... Uh, um I came to Canada in uh, uh, 1981. I remember uh, getting down at uh, Toronto Pearson Airport to uh, maybe, I think, October 10th. And I had no idea after I got down where to go and what to do with the limited cash in my pocket. um, Like I didn't know where to go. And so I somehow managed to come down to uh, campus and uh, it was late in the evening and uh, um, um, everything was closed. But uh, uh, there happened to be uh, one person walking in the campus and then I talked to him and then he took to me the office and then he arranged my stay with YMCA for that night. Right. So so that's how I started. And uh, I had no idea how to do uh, research uh, that time, because I just did my bachelor's of engineering. There no research component there. And uh, so I started uh, from there. But uh, I was fortunate to work with one very prominent professor in the field who was one of the founders of the whole field of power electronics. And then I happened to work on a project where there was a requirement of uh, high frequency, mm. right? And mm. it was required for some induction heating uh, from different purpose. How, to we, how do we melt the uh, metals uh, convert into different shapes, right? So application was totally different. <laughs> but I will say that I was one of the very first people who started to work on high frequency.
4: Electrical circuitry depends on switches. At the most basic level, they determine if a component is on or off, whether a circuit is live or not. At a slightly less basic level, they're how power converters regulate the voltage or frequency of electric current. This requires switches to operate extremely fast.
2: Those days, uh, the typical frequency was about 1 kilohertz, maximum 10 kilohertz. Mm -hmm. And now we are basically, our average frequency is 300 kilohertz and we are going in megahertz frequency. So it's almost 100 to 1,000 increase in the switching frequency. And that is not possible without developing the techniques uh, which do not cause the switching losses. So I was a lucky one to enter that area. From there, I think based on because I had worked in high frequency in my PhD, I got this job with uh, Canadian Astronautics. And then from there, I was recruited by Northern Telecom to convert the all existing power converters based on the older technology with this uh, newer high frequency technology. Mm -hmm. And that's how I started. Nothing. I didn't plan anything. see uh I I came up uh, uh, I, I came from India from a very small town and uh, um, uh, very tightly knit family and uh, we were uh, always taught to to write things and to uh, obey elders not to disrespect anyone right I think I will say that was one of the uh, basic Thing I will say that that guided my life uh, throughout. Like uh, you have to be honest to yourself, and you have to be uh, truthful to others, and uh, and then you just do whatever you think is right, right. And
4: how did that guide your research? Do you think? Uh,
2: yeah, I say, I say uh, that means that uh, I never looked for any shortcuts in terms of the research. Like you do your honest work, and uh, I spend your time. And then things will, things will happen.
4: Hearing Praveen's humble description of his work, a person might not suspect how important his insights into switching losses and high-frequency converters have become. But just for instance, technology based on those insights is currently powering the International Space Station and the Canadarm. Electronic components everywhere depend on converting power from one form to another. What is the big challenge at the heart of what we call power conversion?
2: The biggest challenge in power conversion is how do we process electrical energy in the most efficient and cost-effective manner. If you want your power converters to be cost-effective, They have to be quite small so that the cost of the material is uh, less. But in order to uh, reduce the size of these power converters, uh, we have to switch something called frequency. We have to switch them at very high uh, frequency. So when we switch uh, at high frequency, they do reduce the size of the power converter, but they increase the switching losses which means that now we are not doing this power conversion in the most efficient manner. Mm -hmm. So the biggest challenge is how do we go at very high switching frequency without causing the switching losses?
4: If an engineer can fix the problem of high-speed switches wasting power, it makes a big difference to a lot of people. What do farmers, especially poorer farmers around the world, need most from people with your expertise?
2: Yeah, this is a very good uh, question. If we apply this technology in uh, converting the solar for the agriculture applications, that can do many things. It can improve the yield of uh, the crops because then you have the water whenever you need. It also helps in terms of reducing your cost because now the generation of electricity almost free. Right. Mm-hmm. When you are not using this energy to irrigate your farms, now we can sell this energy back to the grid. Right. So not only you save the cost of energy, but now we can earn extra money so that can help uh, the farmers in terms of improving their economic uh, conditions.
4: And how far down the road do you think farmers are in developing countries To actually reaching this picture
2: that you just described? It is is starting to happen now. And I think we will see that in the next 20 years, you will see that more and more farmers uh, would have used this technology.
4: Where does your own work right now show up in terms of application in the real world?
2: Recently, most of my work is focused towards the renewable energy. Mm -hmm. And one of the focus is how do we make every home independent of the power grid. So we generate our own energy. We have a micro energy system. We are basically, we are able to draw energy from the sun, store in batteries, and then make it available to the home users so 24-7. Mm-hmm.
4: You've set up a company that makes solar micro inverters. Can you just explain what they do? Right.
2: The... Yeah. If we uh, look at uh, whatever need for the energy of the global need of the energy for one day, right? We can get from sun in uh, uh, less than an hour, yeah. right? So we have abundance of solar energy, right? So now is that how do we take this energy and convert it into practical application? So what happened is that the, the microinverters enables that we can design these systems in a very efficient manner. It can also extract maximum possible energy, which is available by from the solar panel. And then uh, it's not expensive. So what happens is that uh, you can, uh, it is a building block concept. You can grow your system by just uh, hmm. adding another block, yeah. right? So it is a, it's, it's like a uh, plug and play concept. And uh, um, I think this will enable the uh, more use of solar energy in uh, uh, day-to-day applications.
4: What still makes you smile now about your work?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm always happy. I In the evening, I always look around in the sky and then see, well, I think this is the space station. And I will say that that is my first work which gave me real break. And, of course, uh, at the University of Toronto – I learned the basics, but that was my first place where I got a real uh, breakthrough. I cannot believe that I have completed the journey of 42 years, right? So that basically, if I look back, well, is it me? It was you. Yes. Thank you.
4: Congratulations, Dr. Jay.
2: Thank you very much.
4: Praveen Jain is professor of electrical and computer engineering at Queen's University. And he's the winner of the 2023 Killam Prize in Engineering. Maybe we should just take one more round of applause for the extraordinary people who are here with us tonight. Congratulations. To the 2023 Killam Prizes and Dorothy Killam Fellowship recipients, every one of you is an impressive human being. Thank you all. Thank you so much again for being here with us, and have a wonderful evening. You're listening to a celebration of the 2023 National Research Council Killam Prize winners. The episode was produced by Tom Howell. Thanks to Guillaume Charbonneau at CBC Ottawa. Thanks also to Natalie Collins, Julia Hoffer, Faduma Omar, Heather Salovera, Don Keenan, and Elisa Nguyen at the National Research Council. You can go to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, to see photos from the event at the Canadian Museum of History, and to find out more about the prize-winning research. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast. If you like what you just heard, check out our podcast feed. It contains more than 300 episodes. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. (coughs)